After the Copenhagen conference went so wrong and failed to reach an international climate deal, everything was riding on the Paris summit six years later. Ladies and gentlemen, probably you have been already aware that I am wearing the same tie that I wore in the opening of the COP20 one year ago. This COP would be different and represent a high point in global efforts. And it is not because I don't have some other ties, but it is because I want to transmit to you a good and a strong signal of hope, a strong signal that we can do it. But in Australia, things would change quickly as Scott Morrison takes the reins. A pro-coal prime minister with no real climate policy. It was almost like the Australian beasts kind of re-emerged back from those Kyoto days in a really aggressive way. I'm Graham Redfern, and this is Australia versus the Climate, the shocking story of how Australia's behaviour across decades has made it a climate change outcast. Part 3. The High of Paris and Australia's Decline. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's September 2015. And Australia is about to get a new Prime Minister. A little while ago, I met with the Prime Minister and advised him that I would be challenging him for the leadership of the Liberal Party. Political reporter Lane Kelcutt joins us live now from Canberra. Lane, Lane, what would be unfolding right now in the hallways of Parliament House? Uh, chaos, Davina, I would imagine, and uh, a lot of meetings going on. I'd like to be a fly on the wall in the Prime Minister's office right now. We haven't yet heard from the Prime Minister. Australia's brutal political culture has claimed another victim. Tony Abbott, who won an election just over two years ago, was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate, and uh, really the reason why his Prime Ministership Well, it was obviously a whirlwind becoming Prime Minister. Uh, It happened very quickly. It was a bit of a surprise. Malcolm Turnbull replaced Tony Abbott as leader. They're oceans apart on climate change. We had already, or the Cabinet had already committed to a 26 to 28% reduction by 2030. Uh, That was really wrung out of Abbott. He was very reluctant to go along with that. There was pressure for Australia to go further with its targets. Certainly, many independent and government advisers were saying so. It wasn't a wasn't an ambitious, uh, but it was a respectable target to take to Paris, and uh, that's what I that's what I did. Two months after becoming PM, 
Turnbull is off to the Paris Climate Conference. It was billed as the COP that was going to save the planet. But two weeks before the conference... Police have now confirmed at least four attacks in the city of Paris tonight, one at the Stade de France... where Paris is hit by deadly terror attacks. More than 120 people killed and over 350 injured in just a few hours of carnage. A short distance away at the Bataclan concert hall, more shootings and an ongoing hostage crisis. The worst peacetime attacks since World War II. Paris felt like a city under siege. It was hard to be cheerful in that environment. When we landed in Paris, you know, masses of security. Moving around was quite hard, particularly for somebody in my position. Uh, the first thing we did was to go to the Bataclan Theatre and uh, pay our respects to those that had been murdered by the terrorist attack there just weeks before. Thousands upon thousands of people have streamed by in the days since, laying down flowers, candles, putting up signs like one that said, I am Paris, I am Bamako, we are humanity. People come here, they light candles, they cry, they remember. Despite those terror attacks, the conference went on. And like the other cops you've heard about, it's busy, bustling, a hive of activity. It was all operating in a series of enormous, like, aeroplane hangars, these enormous uh, convention centre halls. And even as a national leader of a G20 country, you felt a little bit as though you were bobbing along in this kind of maelstrom of activity. It was immense. So security was absolutely insane. There were tanks parked outside the conference centre. Lenore Taylor is the editor of Guardian Australia. She was in Paris covering the conference for The Guardian. Once you got through the security, it wasn't quite as chaotic as Copenhagen, but these things are always kind of chaotic. There was a polar bear that roared at you at various times of the day. There were people every morning giving out chocolate and apples. I don't really know why they were giving out chocolate and apples. But, you know, the food was better. It was France and it, they hadn't oversubscribed the venue so you could actually walk around. It wasn't so deadlocked and it was clear that there was some progress being made. We're living in a historic moment. France is now hosting 150 heads of state and government. No conference has ever hosted such a presence. But then again, never have the stakes been so high. Adam, I'm wondering if between us we can explain this. I mean, what was on the table at the conference? Yeah, there are a few things to point out here. Adam Morton is the Climate and Environment Editor for Guardian Australia. Unlike the Kyoto Protocol, which only included commitments from wealthy countries, the goal at Paris was to get everybody on board, developed and developing countries, to all make commitments to act under a truly global deal on climate for the first time. And at the headline level, 
that really meant getting the US and China on the same page. There are other things on the table, including climate financing, basically how to support the poorest and most at-risk countries and where that money would come from, and a ratcheting up mechanism so that countries would do more over time and not just sit still with their commitments. There was also a hope that the Paris Agreement would reinforce the idea of carbon neutrality or net zero emissions as we describe it now. And this was tied to what the climate science was telling us about what had to happen on limiting temperature rise. Yeah, it was this hope that somewhere in the agreement there'd be a reference to one and a half degrees and limiting warming to one and a half degrees. I mean, that was way more ambitious than what was being talked about in Copenhagen, for example. I mean, the reason for that was in the years just before Paris, the science is starting to really evolve around the sort of impacts that you'll get at different temperature thresholds. I mean, for example, like the difference between one and a half degrees and two degrees is sort of longer heat waves, worse storms, higher sea levels, almost total loss of coral reefs. And for our Pacific neighbours especially, this is catastrophic. From Australia we come with confidence and optimism. We are not daunted by our challenge. It inspires us. It energises us. When Malcolm Turnbull first speaks at Paris, he sounds hopeful. Or the scale of the challenge. I spoke about optimism and ambitions that we had, and I talked about the importance of the technological transition. But above all, we do not doubt the capacity of humanity to meet it with imagination, innovation, and the prudence that befits those like us. It was a momentous occasion. And, yeah, it was, a, it was a moving one. I hope my words did justice to the occasion. Here in Paris, Australia supports a new and truly global climate agreement. There was no guarantee that the two weeks would end with a strong deal, but negotiations were off to a good start. Paris was a classic example of how good diplomacy on this issue can be run. This is Erwin Jackson. He's a long-time climate campaigner and he was then with the Climate Institute and he was in Paris. Like The French are not called the creators of modern diplomacy for no good reason. They are very, very good. And the sequencing and the choreography of the COP in Paris was excellent. Like We had the leaders up front setting expectations um, we had ministers there early helping with the negotiations and then we had other senior officials and senior government, like the head of president of France, um, the UN Secretary General, turning up at the end basically saying, your leaders have asked you to agree this, agree it. There are many issues to be discussed, but there are three major issues at this stage. That is on ambition, that is how we uh, deal with these issues in the future. Environment Minister Greg Hunt and Foreign Minister Julie Bishop we're representing Australia. And at the start, it wasn't clear exactly where Australia would land on the one and a half degree target. Um, but of course, Australia's position is that we're aiming for well below two degrees, but we have supported an appropriate reference to one and, one and a half degrees. Australia wasn't visible in this process, in the discussions about one and a half degrees until the very end. Bill Hare is a respected scientist and analyst and he's an advisor to developing countries at Climate Talks. He played a big role in the negotiations around one and a half degrees. There was a meeting that 
involved Julie Bishop, Greg Hunt was present and others, where Australia was finally challenged on what understandings it had about one and a half degrees. And after some apparently heated discussions with Greg Hunt, Julie Bishop pressed the microphone and announced that Australia fully supported one and a half degrees being operational in the Paris Agreement. Lenore and Adam, so what do you think? Does this show Australia was in a different place than where it's been at other climate talks? So Australia wasn't quite the pariah that we usually are at these things because, you know, the Turnbull government hadn't done something but came along with sort of intentions, good intentions, if you like. Yeah, good intentions without actually having advanced commitment or taking a leading role, I'd say. Um, There was one sort of illustrative moment uh, involving what was known as the uh, group of countries that called itself the High Ambition Coalition. Um, They were set up to push for 1.5 degrees to be included in the agreement Uh, and, uh, you know, more ambitious action generally. A lot of Pacific countries were involved. uh, And there were questions about why Australia was not part of that group during the conference. And Julie Bishop was sort of under pressure from those of us in the press back asking why we hadn't joined and she was sort of equivocating. Finally, she said on Twitter that she had joined and Tony Dubrum, who is the Foreign Minister of the Marshall Islands and and who had sort of crossed horns with um, Julie Bishop earlier in the conference, said that was very nice to know, but, you know, he hadn't seen her at any of the meetings. He was delighted to learn about it uh, on Twitter. But, you know, um, if... Australia was certainly welcome to join, but they would need to bring their credentials along with them, which, you know, was a bit of a diplomatic backhander. So Australia was, you know, had a, had a foot in each camp, I think is the best way to describe us at Paris. One of the issues hanging in the balance was an agreement on climate finance for developing countries. I got a call from one of Australia's senior diplomats just to check in with me about what the mood was amongst um, other countries on the agreement. Climate campaigner Erwin Jackson was talking to people in different camps as a final deal approached. And I just got a feed in from someone who was in the meeting with the developing countries and people were in tears, they'd got the financing that they'd need, everyone was really happy with it and I could just reflect that back to this Australian diplomat. The 1.5 degree goal, promising to increase targets over time, finance for developing nations, it all gets agreed to and then... On the last day of the Paris conference, the time comes. La séance plénière déclare maintenant ouverte la 11e séance de la conférence des parties à sa 21e. And I therefore call to order the 11th session of the 21st COP. It seems the work has been done and the main conference hall is packed. So we are submitting the relevant uh, documents and there are a couple of technical issues that I need. So I was sitting sort of quite towards the front of the room and it was, you know, the tension was rising and rising because it wasn't necessarily a done deal. And uh, the French were really pushing the rhetoric. You know, this was real. They were talking about how the future of humankind was on the line, the future of the world. It was the most important decision that anyone in the whole world would ever ever make and then in the most French thing I've ever seen they said and now we'll break for lunch like not even the future of the world can come between the French and their lunch break they came back from the lunch break and it started again I was on the podium and uh I was just waiting for that moment to happen um, and advising um, the president and the executive secretary as we went through that process. 
Andrew Hyam is an Australian who was working for the United Nations. He led the team that was writing the Paris Agreement. For most people, they were feeling like we got there. Uh, that sort of sense of anticipation. Um, everyone knew that we'd found an agreement that would work for all. Everyone was surprised at how, how the level of ambition was high. The president of the conference, France's then foreign minister, Lauren Fabius, starts reading the text. À le préciser. J'invite maintenant la COP à adopter le projet de décision intitulé Accord de Paris qui figure dans le take it I would like that to be absolutely clear I now invite the COP to adopt the decision uh, entitled Paris Agreement which is in the in the document This is the moment when the Paris Agreement becomes real I looked out to the room I see that the the reaction is positive I see no objections the Paris Agreement is adopted The, the deal was done and it was a moment of euphoria, of dancing and rejoicing. The pure outpouring of joy and probably the most joyous moment I'll ever remember. It was quite remarkable, flowing from everyone. Well, I'm being reminded that I am supposed to, to bang the gavel. It's a small gavel, but I think it can do a great job. It was just that sort of moment where I think everyone realised that I, could, I, could, I just knew we'd done it. Erwin Jackson also remembers this moment. I remember being in Paris, talking with one of the key advisors on these issues, when we just looked at each other when we saw the outcome, and we just went, oh, my God. <laughs> so it was a bit of a moment at the end. Like, I remember there was, some of us had been around for a very long time, and all of us, I think, felt elated at what we'd got out of Paris because it was a really groundbreaking agreement and exceeded the expectations of what we thought was possible diplomatically. Paris was a, a moment. For then Prime Minister of Australia Malcolm Turnbull, the coming together of the world's two biggest emitters was crucial. It was a moment that was and remains important because it was a time when the two superpowers, China and the United States, had come together. That was critically important. Uh, and there was a sense that, you know, the tide in the affairs of climate had turned. And, and that was very inspiring. We knew and we still know that not everything will be saved and can be saved, but it gave us hope that the worst might not happen. Also in Paris was ecologist and professor of biology at Macquarie University, Leslie Hughes. She was among the first scientists in the world to study climate change impacts on species. She's been studying it for 30 years. And if we talk about the Great Barrier Reef, it's been estimated that at two degrees, um, virtually all of the world's reefs are pretty much gone, or at least on a trajectory to go. Whereas at 1.5 degrees, we've saved enough and increased the time between bleaching events by enough years so that reefs can recover. And it wasn't just for ecosystems and species, it was for, for humanity and my, my children in particular. It was just a very, very emotional time that marked a point in history. Graham, what was it like at the end of the conference from your perspective? It was really emotional and I'll say it, there was a lot of people took that moment for a bit of relief 
they were out pretty much straight away on, on the streets of Paris in pubs and bars and nightclubs and stuff. What were you doing when it was all over? I filed my story. Then I went back to my unit, had a quick change, and I went to, there was a party. There was a big party. And while I was there, uh, this is in the early hours by now, who would turn up, Adam, but Cristiano Figueres, the president of the COP. And I decided that she would be a good person for me to dance with. So you had a dance with uh, the hero of the Paris Agreement on the night it was secured. Yes, I had a brief sharing of shapes with the <laughs> with the president of the COP. But th- that was sort of the feeling, actually. It was just that r- relief that a deal had been reached. Every country was on board. You, you've got to remember, at these conferences, there's thousands and thousands of people. And for many, many of them, this is their life. This is what they have spent their whole careers heading towards. And so finally, there's a deal and it's there and it's agreed. So Lenore, you and I come home from Paris, the world celebrating. Was it all that it was cracked up to be? In the end, really, I think the most important part and the really powerful part was that inclusion of the 1.5 degree target. And I say that because business and investment and markets were already at the time of Paris realising that the momentum towards decarbonising economies was unstoppable. But that 1.5 degree target was like the final piece of evidence for business about where the world was heading, where this whole thing was going. It pushed forward, it kind of turbocharged the way investment decisions were already being made. It sent a kind of clear and unambiguous signal about the direction of business. So, In a funny way, that 1.5 degree target that kind of came in at the last moment at Paris, I think in the end was the most important thing. But then when you look at it, the greenhouse gas promises made in Paris, which was really just what every country was prepared to offer up, if you put them all together, they'd still result in global heating of between you know, 2.7 and 3.5 degrees Celsius. There was already a degree locked in there. There's more than a degree locked in now. So there was a disconnect between the ambition and what the countries were promising to do. Paris is not legally binding. The targets have to sit outside of the legally binding part of the document. That was mostly so that it didn't get scuppered by the uh, US Congress. One last thing we should note in the wash-up to Paris is that the deal did include a ratcheting up mechanism. This is really key. We mentioned it earlier. It's this expectation that countries will do more and more over time, set new targets and commitments every five years. Of course, in Australia, we're now six years on from the agreement being signed and we have the same short-term target for 2030 that was set back in 2015 under Tony Abbott. So we're not doing that. The story of those six years is coming up next. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. 
From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. While optimism was high after the Paris deal was reached, the period ahead was hard going internationally and in Australia. Less than a year later, in 2016, hopes around the world for climate action took a major hit. We are going to make this decision now. The Fox News decision desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. Climate science denier Donald Trump wins the US election promising to pull the United States out of the Paris Agreement. The United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. At home, Malcolm Turnbull battled to get support in the coalition for some sort of energy policy. This is a national energy guarantee that will ensure that we have affordable power and that we meet our international commitments under the Paris Agreement to cut our emissions. Australia is going through a fierce drought. It's the biggest dry Queensland has ever recorded. Almost 90% of the state is now drought declared. Mother Nature decides to have a crack at you. You're going to cop it. I've never seen so many cattle dead. Towns are running out of water. I've never seen farmers have to shoot so many stock. Got a very broad crest and just about everything's bleached. Corals across the Great Barrier Reef are bleaching en masse and dying. Right, that's what all these white patches are. That's right. Looks like it's snowed underwater. (laughs) That is shocking. In February 2017, nearly 100 bushfires are burning across New South Wales. Seeing all the flames just come over the hill and go mad. How's your house? What happened to your house? My house and all my property's totally gone. Three, three greyhounds, other cats. The same week... The Treasurer has the call. Mr Speaker. Then Treasurer Scott Morrison holds up a lump of coal in Parliament. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the Treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. It's coal. It was dug up by men and women who work and live in the electorates of those who sit opposite. It was like a psychedelic moment in the House of Representatives. No one could quite believe it was happening. Catherine Murphy is Guardian Australia's political editor. She was covering politics that day from the press gallery in Canberra. I was sitting literally above it, immediately above it, and uh, and government MPs sort of looked up in the direction of a few of us in the gallery with with quizzical looks on their faces as if to say, you know, (laughs) what, what the hell is this? Mr Speaker, those opposite have an ideological, pathological fear of coal. 
There's no word for colophobia officially, Mr Speaker, but that's the malady that afflicts those opposite. Morrison likes the spotlight, likes to present some folksy cut-through image, wanted to be memorable, certainly, but at that point he was devoid of the responsibility of leadership and governing. He was just a guy grinning in the House of Representatives with a lump of coal. A year and a half later, in August 2018... Good afternoon, as you're all aware. There was a ballot conducted in the party room for the leadership of the Liberal Party. The successful candidate was Scott Morrison. Morrison replaced Turnbull as Prime Minister. And he won this vote by 45 votes to 40 for Peter Dutton. Now, our job, as we take forward this new mantle of leadership as a new generation, is to ensure that we not only bring our party back together, which has been bruised and battered this week. So, Adam and Murph, what's going on in the lead-up to Scott Morrison getting the job? Well, Malcolm Turnbull basically lost his job over climate policy. So what changed when Scott Morrison took over was he decided we shouldn't have one in the most simple of terms. There had been plans to introduce an energy policy uh, with an emissions reduction element. It was called the National Energy Guarantee that Morrison had repeatedly supported when he was treasurer. But then when he became leader, it was a point of division within the party. He ditched it immediately. And, I mean, this is a long-term story about uh, the fight within the coalition and the Liberal Party over what to do on climate change, which Murph knows more about than I do. Uh, Morrison had no personal interest in inflaming any sort of relationship with the right wing of the Liberal Party. You know, uh, Morrison is f- sort of floats above the faction. Uh, he, he, he attained the prime ministership with the backing of the moderates. He couldn't go to, he could not go to war with the right. And that's, and so killing the policy was the easiest way to remove the baggage of that point. And he not only killed the policy, he appointed Angus Taylor, a member of the right wing of the Liberal Party, as the new energy and emissions reduction minister, which was a signal Morrison sent to the right of the Liberal Party, climate's not going to be a problem. A case study of what happened to climate policy under the Morrison government is the Green Climate Fund. This is a global fund. It's meant to be worth $100 billion a year to help developing countries deal with the climate crisis. Um, And it was set up through the UN. Australia had played a significant role in its early years in trying to get it up and going. And that all changed once Scott Morrison became Prime Minister. It's 14 and a half to seven. Prime Minister Morrison is with me. Good morning. Good morning, Al. Uh, you're getting around. I didn't know you were a revhead. I had a great fun. Lily and I had the efforts fun. through the United Nations to tackle the climate crisis were not universally welcomed, especially by many in Australia's conservative media. You've disposed of this so-called national energy guarantee. You've turned energy debate from renewable to reliable. Alan Jones is an influential broadcaster. He once described climate science as witchcraft. In October 2018, Scott Morrison goes on his radio show, three months into his prime ministership. Um, Shouldn't we be seeking a simple national energy policy which makes us independent because we're resource rich? Morrison had started telling the Australian public that the country will 
easily meet its Paris targets. How do you get that by being a signatory to Paris? Well, it it doesn't change any of that because we meet it all in a canter. So I can I could ask the, this question. And so then rip, rip, rip up Paris. No, no, this, this is what what is to be gained from ripping it up? Well, because you're being held to the conclusions that will be released no, we in the next 24 no, hours we won't by be at all, all those who are signatories to this. No, we, we're not held to any of them at all, Alan, and, and nor are we bound to go and tip money into that big climate fund. We're not going to do that either. So I'm not going to spend money on you know global climate conferences and all that sort of nonsense. I'm not going to... Get in there. If that's the case, why don't you just say we're out of it? Because, Alan, um, for a couple of reasons. This is sort of one of the key arteries of the climate system. That's Richie Merzian. Merzian was working on the Green Climate Fund in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade when Morrison was announcing it's over. He gets on an interview with Alan Jones and unilaterally pulls Australia out of the Green Climate Fund. Just like that. I don't think he even got the name of the Green Climate Fund right. He just says, we're not going to tip more money into that thing. We're not doing more with that. We're going to leave that thing. Didn't really even know what it was. So long as we're not throwing, you know, money into some global climate fund and, and getting, you know, um, you know, pulled around by the nose by all these international agencies when it comes to these other reports. I mean, the same report that's coming out today said a year ago the policies were fine, but, you know... We're, we're... Two years of impeccable diplomatic work, great work for Australia, just flushed down the dunny. What a disastrous move that was. Like, just such good diplomacy, such a great example of Australian leadership just destroyed in a flippant, whimsical comment to Alan Jones. It just encapsulated how short-sighted and just dumb Australian diplomacy can be because it's just thrown so quickly onto the bonfire of domestic politics. The world's poorer countries were relying on this mechanism to help them to cope with climate change And here we have our Prime Minister who sort of chucks it off in a radio interview saying we will not be throwing money into some global climate fund. And to hear the Prime Minister dismiss it in a radio interview was really quite something else. The extraordinary thing about it was the flippancy of it and so little care for the ramifications to the extent that there was no suggestion that even been investigated or thought about. And as you say, this is a really significant body that is designed to do major work and had the support of, with obviously one major exception in the US under Donald Trump at that time, the support of all our allies and the global community. So it said a lot about how Scott Morrison was thinking about climate policy and his concern about how Australia would be seen internationally on climate at that point. And the Green Climate Fund was really important to our neighbours in the Pacific. Um, We should think for a second about what it meant to them. This is a $100 billion a year fund that was going to provide billions to these largely low-lying islands that are really expected to experience the brunt of the climate crisis with uh, rising seas and worsening storms. And this money is really there to help them cut their own emissions, but more importantly, prepare for what lies ahead um, so they can survive it. And for Morrison to pull out of it in the way he did, it was a real slap in the face to our Pacific neighbours. Flying into a country at the forefront of climate change and a key battleground issue at this year's Pacific Islands Forum in Tuvalu. Every year, leaders from around the Pacific come together for official talks. It's called the Pacific Island Forum. The forum isn't part of the UN's climate efforts, 
but they are critical talks between Australia and its closest neighbours. They're demanding Australia stop building coal mines and dramatically cut its greenhouse gas emissions. Because in the Pacific, climate change isn't about ideology or debate, it's about whether or not these countries survive. In 2019, in the tiny island nation of Tuvalu, the talks between Scott Morrison and Pacific leaders became fractious. I, I was hoping that this could be, be a very, very good golden opportunity to have this group of leaders who are amongst which the, the most vulnerable in the world to push this agenda forward and try to move the Paris Agreement into action. Unfortunately, we missed this opportunity. This is Anele Sopoaga, who was then the Prime Minister of Tuvalu and the chair of the Pacific Island Forum meeting. Usually these meetings discuss a range of important issues facing the Pacific. In this one, climate change was the focus. I was putting my hopes on that progressive language to move further and to really express comprehensively uh, the understanding on climate change as an existential threat to the security of and the livelihood of Pacific Island countries. This was a highly emotional meeting. Small island states were calling for all countries there to agree to immediately stop building new coal plants and mines and rapidly phase out existing coal power. The Pacific Island leaders call for a cessation of coal mining. I thought these were clearly expressed. Leaders spoke on the floor, leaders shed tears in sympathy, particularly for atoll nations like Tuvalu, Kiribati and Marshall Islands and others. But Australia and Morrison saw a long-term future for coal. Australia accounts for 1.3% of the world's emissions. Australia, on its own, won't cool the climate. And if we're serious about it, we've got to actually understand that emissions don't have a nationality and where the bulk of emissions come from. The Prime Minister of Tonga was actually crying after hearing some uh, expressions from our colleague from Australia. So it was done in that type of context, and it was quite serious uh, situation. The room was very open. You know, in, in a normal meeting house in Tuvalu, you don't have walls. Ian Fry is an Australian who was the chief negotiator on climate for Tuvalu for more than 20 years. He was part of a team drafting the official record of what was agreed at the forum. As the leaders were negotiating, Fry was watching from the side. While we were waiting to get texts, we could just stand outside and watch what's going on. And, and, but, you know, the real problem was the text on climate change. There were a number of paragraphs that Prime Minister Morrison couldn't live with. And there was toing and froing. The Pacific Island leaders went around the room, you know, making a plea to Morrison to accept this text. And, and, and Jacinda Ardern was, was also saying the same thing, you know, please, Prime Minister, can you accept this? And there were, there were, there were a couple of key, key clauses that he, he couldn't accept. They took a break and the Prime Minister Tuvalu grabbed me and says, come here and sit down with Prime Minister Morrison and just sort out this text. So I was put in a little table opposite Prime Minister Morrison. He wasn't very accommodating. The goal to get Morrison to agree that Australia would phase out coal is shot down. There's no mention of coal at all in the final agreement. 
And then he said, oh, there's a little paragraph here about finance. We won't worry about that. And I said, look, Prime Minister, there's a specific reference to the Green Climate Fund and Pacific Island countries are very strongly in support of the Green Climate Fund and we want an endorsement. Remember the Green Climate Fund? When the Australian government pulled out of it, it said it would instead direct $500 million of aid to help Pacific Islands deal with climate change. However, this was not new money. It was drawn from a pool of aid funding that was already going to the Pacific. Pacific leaders saw this as a cut to their climate lifeline. Fry says Morrison was not happy. Morrison looked at me with steely eyes and says, do you want me to not give you the $150 million we've promised? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying? And then, and then he said, look, I'm just talking to prime ministers and, and dismiss me. After this exchange, Sopoaga says Morrison came up to him and questioned what Fry's role was. Sopoaga wasn't impressed. No other leader of the forum has any right to question my sovereign rights to choose who I work with on the issues of climate change. It was very, very, to me at least personally, very un- unprofessional and uh, very threatening. So he had his uh, interest at heart as a leader, of the, of, as a chairman of the forum. My main goal was to make sure we had an issue uh, uh, communicate. As the PIF chairman, myself, I was stunned. And I want to share this with you. By the unpacific tenor and manner of the Australian Prime Minister to water down the wording of the communique and to limit the concerns about climate change, much against the concerns and the tears that were set by the Pacific Island leaders. I think for most people, including myself, Morrison's behaviour was quite confronting. Bill Hare has been part of climate negotiations for more than 30 years. Hare was invited to the forum by Sopoaga to give scientific advice and support. I've rarely seen interactions between leaders that are so, uh, how can I put this, are so threatening. I think that uh, Morrison clearly felt the need to push back very heavily on his counterparts in the Pacific. Uh, witness, you know, for example, the Chinese uh, minister losing his block with the small island states because they won't agree to what he wants, or I've seen the Saudis uh, lose their usual diplomatic cool, but I've never seen anything like Morrison's behaviour, frankly. It was really pushing back on on the small islands of the Pacific, wanting Australia to commit to more action, wanting Australia to commit to dealing with its coal problem, wanting to commit to uh, increasing climate finance for the region. And his pushback on that was, I mean, I wasn't in a position to hear his words, but the body language was really quite horrible. And you could see that in people who were closer to it. What Australians need to understand is how Pacific Island countries really relate to Australia. There are very deep connections between people in much at least of the Southern Pacific and Australia. They have family, they go to university there, and they feel very close to the country. To have this very confronting neighbour who is determined not to listen to them on 
uh, what is for Pacific Island countries an existential problem uh, is extremely challenging. I thought, perhaps too ambitiously, that hosting the 50th PIF in Tuvalu, my country, which is perhaps the most threatened atoll nation due to impacts of climate change, would secure genuine, genuine sympathy and loyal understanding on our Tuvalu plea over the many years. Sadly, making money took over precedence of saving lives of people in this city. That is a great concern. We asked Scott Morrison about what happened in the forum in Tuvalu and for his response to accusations he behaved in a threatening manner to other leaders. A spokesperson for the Prime Minister sent us a statement. He said that the Prime Minister had always worked closely and cooperatively with all Pacific leaders and had built strong personal relationships and was in regular contact with them. He said he congratulated Tuvalu on the way it hosted the forum, the significant outcomes they achieved and that all leaders signed on to the forum's declaration. Uh, I think, look, generally um, we can we can note a couple of things about that. Catherine Murphy again, Guardian Australia's political editor. So at, at that time, uh, obviously Scott Morrison had won an election in part by weaponising climate ambition against Labor in regional Queensland seats. So that's the context. In terms of how he operated uh, in that forum, I, I wasn't present, I didn't attend, I didn't witness, but obviously there were ubiquitous reports afterwards suggesting that he had been, you know, more than assertive in uh, in these negotiations. This is a Prime Minister that is still new to the job, new to the Prime Ministership, uh, so perhaps that's a factor. Morrison is notorious for being highly transactional in his dialogue with others, political actors in the parliament, interest groups. Uh, he's not interested in chit-chat. He's not interested in small talk or just relationship building. He is notorious for just boring into the heart of whatever the issue is. He's not a flatterer. He's not somebody who elaborately tries to construct relationships with people that you then leverage. He's like a tank. He's like a tank in low gear who just drives through focused on the transaction. So perhaps it's a combination of all those things. de la vigésima quinta sesión de la conferencia de las partes de la Convención Marco de Naciones Unidas sobre el Cambio Climático, COP25. In December 2019, three months after the Pacific Island Forum, there's another COP in Madrid. What we need is not an incremental approach, but a transformational one. Without seeing the full picture, we will not solve this crisis. Finding holistic solutions is what the COP should be all about. But instead, it seems to have turned into some kind of opportunity for countries to negotiate loopholes and to avoid raising their ambition. And there, Australia's reputation under the Morrison government continued to crumble. 
Madrid meeting in the end of 2019 was a horrible, ugly meeting where it seemed all ambition had drained out of the entire international process. There again, here was Australia playing a horrible, ugly role, pushing its laggard responses, trying to avoid an obfuscate delay. Uh, we're in a position to meet and beat, and you'll see, in fact, there we're ahead of we're ahead of the target now. Yes, but you'll meet and beat based on the carryover credits. Is that well, well, that's one factor. There's more to that's it than a that, of course. Big factor, well, 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 Australia no. was seeking to be allowed to carry over its so-called surplus from the Kyoto Protocol period to the Paris Agreement. But Mr Taylor, why do we need carryover credits? Why do we need to go on the international stage and argue for carryover credits? Shouldn't we just be trying to get that 26% target anyhow? Well, we'll, we'll only use them as if we need to, and we've been very clear about that. All right, let's explain what Australia was asking for. In episode one, you heard about the emissions targets that developed countries agreed in Kyoto. These were in effect until 2020. When the world met in Paris, countries set new targets under a totally separate deal to start after 2020. Australia set weak targets under Kyoto and, not surprisingly, beat them easily. When Australia turned up in Madrid, it wanted to claim credit for beating its Kyoto targets against the new Paris target. Think of it like a sports team that wins a season by 10 points and then tries to start the next season 10 points ahead. It's a sensible target. We know we can achieve it. We'll strive to beat it. And, of course... We strive to beat it without using any of those credits. Well, we use the credits if we have to, but we will strive to beat it. And, of course, central to, central to that... It's not even in the rules, and it's not even <clears throat> part of the game. Andrew Hyam was working for the UN and led the team that wrote the Paris Agreement. In the case of the uh, Kyoto credits being moved, banked and then moved into Paris, well, that was ruled out by parties. We'd already negotiated that in the lead-up to Paris. Um, and to have Australia come back to the table after the Paris Agreement was adopted and, and then say somehow that they could do this was just... That's why it appeared so vile and, uh, and so against um, the spirit of the Paris Agreement um, to be coming back in that way. Australia was accused of cheating. It was cheating. I mean, the Minister, Angus Taylor, was there. We know technology has the potential to allow us to reduce emissions without hurting the economy, without shedding jobs. That will be our focus and our targets will always... He left early for reasons I've never really understood, but I personally link that to a hard time he got from governments that he met. Of course, I wasn't in the room where he met governments, but, you know, I, I've been around long enough to know a lot of lead negotiators or ministers from countries like India or China or whatever who sort of talked around the corridors. And the messages I got was he got a very hard time about Australia's positioning on things from some of these countries. It was almost like the Australian beast kind of re-emerged back from those Kyoto days in a really aggressive way. Jennifer Morgan, the head of Greenpeace International, was in Madrid. They were alone, really, in, in wanting that, and that they were very, again, stubborn to accept that they would not be able to do that. Yes, it is kind of an exceptionalism thing of a country to think that it can do that. I think it can also be a sign of desperation, however, of really trying to hold on to 
a past where it was able to do that and trying to bring that back. Uh, and I remember just kind of stopping in my tracks. And it was one of the inspirations for the speech I gave, actually. Um, Greta Thunberg invited me at an event that the secretary put together for her to give a speech. It is true that we are living in dark climate politics days. There are shadows that lurk behind the curtains. The billions of dollars of the fossil fuel industry lobbying, making people fat and corrupt as they condemn the world and all its beauty and diversity to devastation. And I talked about the dark forces behind the curtains. And that, that was one of those dark forces to me, of just trying to hold on to things and keep those those same interests that are trying to hold back the world from moving forward. But I have not given up hope. Even after 25 years coming to these things, I have not given up hope that humanity can and will find a way forward and a way out. Because if I did, it would mean that I'd given up on humanity itself, and I am not ready to do that. Remember in episode one, when we heard about the special deal Australia demanded in Kyoto, the Australia Clause? To Andrew Hyam, Australia's push for those credits in Madrid was even worse than that. I think it damages Australia um, far more than um, what happened in Kyoto. It is much more a bad faith um, negotiation and I think really um, does undermine Australia and its role in multilateral negotiations more widely. In 1997, like we have lots of people, remember, accusing Australia of cheating. And now in 2019 in Madrid, we have people accusing Australia of cheating. And it just feels like, wow, have we, have we gotten anywhere? It's, it's impossible to overstate how much this is really working against this global effort to address the climate crisis. They're trying to stop having to make emissions cuts by claiming credit from a different climate deal that has no relationship to the Paris Agreement. The Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement are completely different international treaties. There was legal advice showing there was no basis for claiming credit for stuff that was happened under the Kyoto Protocol as part of the Paris Agreement. You had more than 100 countries lining up in opposition to this push. And Australia was really isolated alongside Brazil, really, who were trying a different but similar sort of thing on. And this is at the most recent COP before Glasgow. It was just weeks before COVID struck and climate negotiations, like everything really, all but ground to a halt for a period. This is the last experience the world has had of Australia dealing with these serious issues at an international summit. And we were being accused of cheating. I really feel like even though this was all reported and discussed at the time, it's not really understood how much we were out on a limb at this point on this major issue at which the government claims that it is taking serious steps. I think that we're probably going to turn up in Glasgow and uh, the real question a lot of people will have is, has anything changed in the two years since? When you hear of what Australia's done and you hear it in in a podcast series, compressed and condensed, it makes you realise the, the opportunities that we've had 
and also the damage probably that Australia has done uh, to efforts to sort of cope with the climate crisis and slow down the worst of it. I can definitely see how people listening to this will feel really frustrated and maybe not all that optimistic as Australia heads to Glasgow. I think the level of frustration with Australia is at a record high. I'm hearing more and more from colleagues in the European Union, the US, the UK, about how bad the Morrison government is on climate action, uh, that they cannot quite believe that this country is so regressive on this and other issues. The question now is where the hell is Australia? What on earth is Australia up to? Despite the terrible devastation to the reefs, seeing this Morrison government's failure to address climate change, it's almost like they're trying to hide like it's not happening. It is puzzling that you can have so much knowledge. In Australia, you have some of the best researchers in the world also on this. How come that it is so difficult to take the needed decisions and change the course we are on. Why is that so difficult when we know as much as we know? Why is it that we have to see the warnings of the scientists come true before we really start to get our act together? It's due to a lack of leadership and an inability to bring industry forward. It's also due to some bloody-mindedness within parts of our political economy. The reality is that Australia is unfortunately still very much wedded to an old economy. Before I go, I want to recommend something. A lot of the reporting about what happened at the Pacific Island Forum came from our colleague Kate Lyons. She's just finished making an outstanding three-part series about the Pacific Islands and all the hard choices they need to make as climate change continues. It's called An Impossible Choice, and you can find it a couple of weeks back in the Full Story podcast feed. On the next episode of Australia vs. the Climate... You'll hear about what's at the heart of this series, the weak targets and lack of ambition, and that's fossil fuels. I really believed that if we produced good science, that would lead to good policy, and of course it didn't. We are going to continue to get wealthy on the back of polluting the planet and stuff the rest of you. What? What is Australia doing here? Like, are they out to wreck things? Governments are bought. And I would argue the Australian government has been a wholly owned subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry from 1989 to this day. I'm your host, Graham Redfern. Australia versus the Climate was reported and produced by me and Adam Morton. The series producer is Jake Morecambe. This episode was produced with the assistance of Ellen Liebeter and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design. Mixing by Camilla Hannan. Beck Pridham and Thomas Phillips assisted with production. Executive producers are Adam Morton, Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.